Well, good morning, family. So good to be with you on this wonderful, beautiful summer day. We're in Psalms in the summer. We're going to keep that going through, actually through Labor Day. And we're going to spend the next five weeks in a very special psalm. I'd like for you to open your Bibles to Psalm 119. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you. I encourage you today to open up a Bible. Turn to the middle of the Bible. You'll be in the book of Psalms and find Psalm 119. Now, of course, all of the Psalms are special, but this particular Psalm stands out in many ways. Some of you are aware, I'm sure, that this is the longest Psalm. It's also the longest chapter in all of the Bible with 176 verses. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon told the story of a man named George Wishart who was the first Episcopal Bishop of Edinburgh, Scotland. And back in 1650, he was sentenced to death by hanging. The day of his execution arrived, but a pardon that he was expecting did not. And so as he was hauled to the gallows to be hung, just before they put the noose around his neck, he was given what was a custom at that time. He was allowed the opportunity to sing a psalm. And so he did. He chose Psalm 119 with all 176 verses. And before he got two-thirds through, Charles Spurgeon says, the pardon arrived. <laughs> so apparently, if you memorize Psalm 119, it may save your life, just for what that's worth. We won't get through the whole psalm today, obviously, if you know how I preach. John Calvin preached 22 sermons on this psalm. Thomas Manton, a Puritan pastor uh, back in the 1600s, preached 190 sermons on this psalm. So I hope I don't get you disappointed or do you a disservice as I just do five sermons and just scratch the surface over the next five weeks. It's a beautiful and a masterful piece of literature. If you appreciate that, you'll like it. If you don't appreciate literature, we'll just endure. But um, some of you probably are aware, I'm sure, that this psalm is an acrostic. An acrostic is a piece of writing where the first letters of each line form, well, they, they are used to form a meaningful pattern. Like, for example, some of you have seen the little thing where you have joy, J-O-Y, and then coming off the J, you have Jesus, then off the O, you have others, and then off the Y, you have you, Jesus, others, you, joy. Some of you have seen the, the word Bible, and where they take each letter of Bible, B stands for basic, I for instructions, and B before leaving earth. Okay, those are acrostics. And this psalm is laid out as an acrostic. The writer of this, the composer of this song, he he built it around the Hebrew alphabet. The Hebrew alphabet has 22 letters. And what he did was start each section. We would call it a stanza or a, uh, perhaps you might think of it as a paragraph or in another English term to learn, it's a strophe. Each section has one letter of the alphabet as the beginning letter of each verse. And in our English Bibles, you might know from other times as we've been going through passages, 
that sometimes the verse markings in our English Bibles just happen at random and weird places. Fortunately, in this psalm, they put the, the verse markings at the right spot. Every verse is, shows us a couplet. A couplet is two lines, two lines of Hebrew poetry that go together. And so every section of this psalm has eight verses. Each, each verse has two lines. And the, each of those two lines begins with the same letter in each section. For example, verses 1 through 8 begin with the Hebrew letter. Each verse begins with the Hebrew letter Aleph, which is the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And probably in your translation, no matter what one you're looking at, above that first verse in Psalm 119 is the word Aleph. And then you come to verse verse 9, which is the second paragraph or the second strophe or the second stanza. And those eight verses all begin with the letter Beth, which is the second letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And you get to the third section, which begins in verse 17. The next eight verses each begin with the letter Gimel, which is the third letter of the Hebrew alphabet, all the way through. Twenty-two letters times eight verses equals 176. And that's how many verses are in this psalm. So 22 stanzas of eight verses, each one beginning with a succeeding letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So it's laid out very artistically. But the purpose of that acrostic probably was not to be artsy. It wasn't just so that everybody would look at it and go, ooh. Rather, it was probably done very practically. The purpose was to help people memorize the psalm. You have to remember that in ancient times, most people did not have a copy of the Scripture in their home. Everything was copied by hand. If you wanted to read the Scriptures, you had to go down to the, to the, to the synagogue, your local synagogue, or to the temple, or in some cases into a nearby school. And there they might have a copy of the Scriptures you could read. And so if you wanted to think about and meditate upon the Scripture, you needed to memorize it, which is exactly what the ancient Hebrews did. Most of them committed large portions, even entire books of the Scriptures to memory. In fact, this very psalm encourages you and me to put Scripture to memory. If you look in verse 11, it says, I have stored up your word. Some of your translations may say, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. It says memorizing God's word helps to keep us from sin. Some of you may think, well, who in the world could memorize this whole long psalm? 176 verses. Well, probably you could. I remember years ago at summer camp, youth summer camp here at the chapel, we were with several other churches. And um, during the week, we always split the, split the camp up into various teams that competed all week long in sports and all kinds of different things. And I remember one year that uh, somebody was complaining about how the teams were broken up and they didn't think they were very fair. And one of the youth pastors kind of facetiously just threw out a proposal. And he said, I'll tell you what, if somebody on Friday can, can quote from memory all of Psalm 119, 
their team will win the whole week's competition. And so everybody, yeah, 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 yeah. But there was one little gal, a gal named Allison, who took that and said, hmm. She was a gal who had some physical limitations. She said, I'm going to take that challenge. And on Friday of that week of camp, she quoted 176 verses of Psalm 119 and went into camp history (laughs) and her team won. I say that if she could do it, if Allison could do it, I think most of us could. It would probably just take us a lot longer than five days. And we'd need some good motivation. This psalm is notable because of its length. It's notable because of its artful form. Because of its beautiful composition, as you read through, it has inspired many other songs. But if you look carefully, I think the most striking feature about this psalm is not its form, it's not its composition like that. It is its theme. And the theme is unmistakable. Some people have entitled this psalm the psalm of the Word. And let me show you why. Look in verse 9. Verse 9, it says, How can a young man keep his way pure? The answer, by guarding it according to your Word. Look in verse 11. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Look down in verse 16. It says, I will not forget your word. This is called the psalm of the word because nearly every verse in this psalm directly mentions God's word. If you go through this psalm in the ESV, which I did this week, I I counted the number of times that phrase showed up. Twenty-two times. It shows up. Now, if you put everything I just said together, some of you would probably go, wait a minute, Pastor. You just said that nearly every verse in this psalm uh, talks about God's Word, but you just said now that only 22 verses say your Word. 22 is a long way from 176. And you'd be right. But this psalm also uses synonyms to talk about God's Word. At least 10 of them. Synonyms like the word precept or the word statutes or the word law or the word testimonies or commandments. And when you include all of those synonyms, out of 176 verses, there's only two, between two and seven of them that do not directly mention God's Word. The reason there's a disagreement, is it two or is it seven, is because scholars disagree. That's what scholars do. They disagree over stuff and nitpick on stuff. And so the question is, what some of them say, well, this word is a synonym for the Word of God. And others say, no, it's not. And they say, but this word is. And no, it's not. So they disagree. Bottom line, between two and seven verses out of 176 don't talk about the Word of God. In other words, an awful lot do. Almost every one. So, Just two big points this morning. That's got to be the longest introduction ever. In an effort not to miss seeing the forest because of all the trees, as we begin a study for the next several weeks looking at the psalm of the Word, I want to call our attention this morning to just two big points. The first is the most obvious point that I don't want us to miss. And it's easy to miss. 
this. God speaks. First big point, God speaks. And that's significant. Romans chapter 1 and verse 20 and and Psalm 19 that David wrote, both of those affirm that creation declares, it attests clearly and unmistakably that there is a Creator. And the Creator is absolute in power and in glory. But thankfully, God has given us more than that. It's good that creation tells us of the glory of God. I love camp. I love being out last week with our kids down at Lake of the Ozarks in the state park for a week of camp. I love going out and sitting under the stars at night where there's not a lot of lights and you just look up and wow, there's a lot of stars. And it's beautiful. And I can't help myself but just to sit there and I'm reminded of Psalm 19 where David writes, the heavens declare the glories of God and the, the skies proclaim the work of His hands. And that's good. But thankfully, God has given us more. God speaks and God speaks. This psalm declares very clearly God speaks through His Word. You see, we could never know what God thinks We could never know what God desires for us. We could never know who God is unless God revealed that to us. There's no way we can discover that on our own for we can't see God. We can see the evidence of the Creator in the creation, but we can't see Him. We can't know about Him. And that is the great message of the Scripture. That's the great message of the Bible. God has spoken. Because God has spoken, God is knowable. Through His Word, not only can we know about God, but we can know Him relationally. We can know Him Him personally. We can do that because God, through His Word, invites you and me into relationship with Him. Through His Word, He tells us how we can get to know Him through placing our faith, our trust, in the incarnate Word, God who became man, who became one of us, and came to die for our sin. And all of us who trust in Him enter into a relationship with Him. And so this psalm is all about celebrating that God has given us His Word in a written form. Because we have it in written form, God continues to communicate to you and me to this very day through His written Word. That's what this psalm is all about. The big theme, God speaks and God speaks through His Word. And not only does God speak through His Word, but it goes on to let us know, remind us that this is God's Word. I note that that this psalm, every time it says what we just read a moment ago in those verses where it says your word. It says it in a very unique way. It says your word and not your words. That's a subtle difference, but it's important and it's intentional. It wasn't an accident for the author to write your word. It's not wrong to talk about God's words, for He has spoken many words, but the point of saying it in the singular is saying that God's written Word, 
God speaking through His written Word is a singular Word. It is a singular unity of declaration. What He's teaching is that the Scripture is united. It is one one communication from God. That every part of the Bible that you hold in your hand is inspired by God. One part is not inspired more and another part less. But it is all the Word of God. Theologians use a term for that called the plenary inspiration of Scripture. Plenary means the complete, the total inspiration of Scripture. All of Scripture, as Paul writes to Timothy, is inspired by God. All of it is His Word. What you hold in your hands is not some of the words of God. It's not something that contains some of the Word of God along with the words of men. It is all the Word of God. That's marvelous. So, why is that so marvelous? You might wonder. And that brings me to our second second big point. God speaks And He has spoken through His Word. And this is the Word of God. Second big point is, what does that mean to us? How should you and I respond? Over 30 years ago, a youth pastor friend of mine told me a story that I've just never forgotten. I don't know why. But he was telling me about his experience as a counselor in a a summer camp. He was... Uh, spent the summer while he was in college working at his camp for inner city kids. So every week he had a cabin full of 10 to 12 year old inner city kids. One week he was, he had a group that was just particularly a bunch of off the wall kids. They were so just difficult in so many ways. Every night as we typically do in most Christian camps at night before we go to bed, he would try to have a little Bible lesson, a little devotional time with them. And he got these kids in the cabin and they were there and he's trying to sit down and he's opened the Scripture and he's talking. But as he's talking, the kids are giggling and talking back and forth and they're hanging off their beds and they're clowning around and they're jumping on their beds and they're making little farting noises and stuff, you know, like like 10 to 12 year old boys do. And he's just getting nowhere. And finally, in just frustration, he just jumps up on the bed and he says, Who's talking? That just woke some of you up, sorry. And and he said, the room just got deathly quiet and the kids just all froze in place. He said, Who's talking? One of the kids very timidly just said, You are? He said, No! God's talking. And when God talks, we listen. He said the rest of the week, every time he tried to get them together to do a Bible lesson, he said they just came and they sat down and they listened. He said, I was never really sure if that was because they really wanted to listen to what God said or if it was just because they were worried about the sanity of their counselor and their safety. (laughs) But I tell you that story because he's right. When God talks, our response ought to be, we listen. Sadly, I fear that the majority of us today 
fall far short of being good listeners to God's Word. I recently read a study that said the average Christian spends less time in the Word of God each day than they spend watching the commercials that run during a 30-minute TV program. And I, I'm sorry, but I pro- really don't doubt that that's probably true of most Christians. But I hope and I trust that you guys here today are not average Christians. But the reality is that some of us, even though we might, we might agree with the fact that it's, if God speaks, then our response ought to be, we listen. Some of you may be thinking, you might be tempted to ask, except you don't ask questions like that in church because we're too proud. Why would I want to listen? Why should I listen? Why should I really be concerned about God's Word? And I think these first few verses of this psalm give us the answer to that question. I mentioned earlier that at least there are at least ten synonyms used in this psalm for God's Word. Seven of those synonyms are introduced in these first eight verses. Let me just read these eight verses and you see if you can pick them out and then I'll point them out. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep His testimonies, who seek Him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in His ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. As you're following along, did you see some of those synonyms? Seven of them. The first one is in verse 1, that word law. It shows up in, this, in the rest of the psalm 25 times. This word law has a nuance of teaching or instruction. God's Word teaches and instructs. Verse 2, another synonym for God's Word is the word testimonies. shows up ten times in the Psalms. It's from a root word that means to bear witness. It's a legal term. If you're in a court of law and you have a witness who's sworn in to tell the truth and nothing but the truth and he bears witness and the purpose of this word or the implication of this word is that it is a solemn, a firm declaration of truth. This is what God says. Verse 3, a third synonym we find here is the word ways. Seven times it's used in this psalm. Its emphasis is that God's character, God's thinking is very different from our way of thinking and our way of acting. It's God's way. Verse 4, we get another synonym that's that word precepts. shows up 21 times in this psalm. It's a word that means to oversee a matter, to pay close attention. Derek Kidner in his excellent commentary on Psalms says, it points to the particular instructions of the Lord as to one who cares about detail. See, God's Word sweats the details. Everything is right. 
Verse 5 and verse 8, you have the same synonym for God's Word. It's the word statutes. It shows up 22 times in this psalm. It's a word that means to engrave in stone. We still use that figure of speech today. For something that is unchanging, it's set in stone. God's enacted words are binding in nature and they do not change. Verse 6, another synonym that's there is the word commandments. 22 times the author uses it in this psalm. It's a word that emphasizes simply the straight out authority of what God says. And verse 7 A synonym that shows up 23 times in Psalm 119 is the word rules. Sometimes it may be translated in your Bible as the word judgments. And it simply refers to a legal decision if you're in court and the judge issues a decision. But it's a decision that's bigger than just your average decision. It refers to a decision, legal decision that sets a precedence. Binding law. You know that's how our system works. There are certain Decisions that have been made that set precedents. And whenever a judge is looking to make a decision, he goes back and looks and says, so what's the precedence? In this case, has set the standard. God's Word is that that sets the standard. It's binding law when He makes a decision. Those are some of the synonyms that show up in the Psalms. But I brought those up this morning because it tells us something about God's Word that is significant when we ask the question, why should I listen to what God says? Every one of these words, as I tried to just say, what do they have in common? The one thing they have in common is this. They all speak with authority. They all speak with authority. You see, God's words are words of authority. When God speaks, He doesn't mumble. God didn't give just a list of helpful hints for your life that you can try this one or not. When God speaks, it's not something that we can just sit around and and pull up some chairs and, well, let's talk about, what do you think about this one? Well, I don't like it. Okay, we're scratching that one out. What do you think about this one? Well, that might work. Let's give it a try. We'll talk in a couple of weeks, see if we want to keep it. Okay. Let's take a vote. It's not that way. When God speaks, He speaks with authority. We live in a culture that has very little regard for authority. Have you noticed that? And I think it's getting more that way every day. No regard for authority as parents. No regard for teachers or bosses as authority. Less and less regard for the authority of police or of law at all. When you ignore or when you argue with or when you disobey authority, there are consequences. The reality is the more powerful the authority is, the more likely that you're going to suffer the consequences. And I think the point of these terms is exactly to say God is the authority. He is the sovereign, all-powerful, all-knowing God. And when He's the authority... When He speaks, you can be 100% sure that He knows what you and I do. And if we ignore or argue with or disobey, He will enforce 
His law. Therefore, our response shouldn't be just listen. It ought to be listen and obey. I heard a pastor once, Stuart Briscoe, some of you may know that name. He was teaching once. And, and uh, as he was talking, he asked the question of the, of the group. He said, what is it that we do with the commands of God in Scripture? And one lady raised her hand and she said, well, I underlined them in blue. <laughs> you know, that may be helpful, but that's not the point. What do we do with the commands in Scripture? We better keep them, is the real answer. See, God hasn't given His commandments so that we can fill up our heads and fill up our notebooks with a bunch of information. Well, I know what God says to do here. God has given us His Word with His laws and His commands and His precepts and His judgments and all of these things so that you and I can correct our sin, pro- sin issues. The things in our life that are out of line with what God thinks and with what God desires for us. That's why He's given us His Word. When we fill our heads with knowledge but we don't obey what God says, What that produces in us is pride over our great knowledge and self-deception. We we end up like the Pharisees who knew what God said but didn't do it. And they thought they were in great shape because they were so religious and all the time they were an awful mess. And so our proper response to God's Word is listen and obey. As I wrap up, there's one more reason that you and I should listen and obey God's Word. Go back to verses 1 through 3. I want to read them again. One little note about this psalm, off subject, but this is a freebie. If you read through Psalm 119, there's another thing that is outstanding about this. You will notice that almost every single verse in this psalm is directly addressed to God. Matter of fact, you will find either God's name or the pronoun you or your in every verse except, as I went through, four. Three of those verses that aren't addressed to God are the first three verses of this psalm, the introduction. There's just one random verse over in the middle that uh, doesn't, isn't addressed to God. But back to this. First three verses. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep His testimonies, who seek Him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in His ways. The question, why should we listen to what God says and do it? The answer, I'm going to answer with another question. How many of you would like to be happy? This is not a trick question. Only about half of you. The rest of you need to go home and watch the news. Look up your 401k, you know, whatever it is. That's a, yeah. Those of us who want to be happy, listen, because He gave the answer right here. It's actually almost the same answer. Matter of fact, it is the same answer that Mr. Kirk read earlier from Psalm 1. Psalm 1 says almost the same thing. Look here. Blessed are those. That's another word for happy. Happy are those who... 
Let me give you a list of six things that's there in this. Blessed are those whose way is blameless. Blessed are those who walk or live in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep His testimonies. Blessed are those who seek Him with all their heart. Blessed are those who do no wrong. Blessed are those who walk in His ways. Saying, blessed are those who listen to what God says and do it. You can't do what God says unless you know what God says. So first you've got to listen. And then you've got to do it. And that's, intriguingly enough, that was my big point. Second big point. What's our response to God's Word? Listen and do it. What's going to happen if you listen and do God's Word? You'll be blessed. You'll be happy. No, really? Yeah. See, we think happiness is a right. It's guaranteed in the Constitution. You know, the pursuit of happiness thing. Or is that Declaration of Independence? Declaration of Independence. But we got the right! Yeah, but you can go pursue happiness and hit a dead end. Get nowhere. Read the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon tells you, There's an awful lot of dead ends. But this right here tells us here's here's how to be blessed. Here's how to be happy. Listen to God. Do what He says. We get that in other areas of life. Buy a new car. We've bought one in our lifetime. Some of you have bought many, so maybe never, but that's okay. Principle still stands. Buy a new car. The new car says on the gas cap, in case you don't read the, in case you don't read the instruction manual, which is there in the glove box, in case you didn't know that. And it says on the gas cap, use unleaded fuel only. So if you really don't care or know what the difference is between unleaded fuel and diesel fuel, who knows? Who cares? They're both fuel. Put diesel fuel in there. Don't expect good results. Okay? Some of you, again, you get that new car and it says in the owner's manual, change the oil every 5,000 miles. But you don't read the owner's manual. Nobody reads that stuff. 60,000 miles later, as you're having a long conversation with the mechanic, you ask the question, what's an oil change? (laughs) You see, we get that when the maker says something about our stuff, there's a reason behind it. And we ignore it to our peril. So one day you go and you buy an iPhone. And as you're playing with your iPhone, you start taking some pictures and you realize, wow, that's a great camera. That's better than the pictures I get on my camera. So I'm going to use this for my camera. And then one day you take up scuba diving and you think, you know, I'd like to take underwater pictures. But you learn something from your car. You learn that ignorance can be costly. So you do your due diligence and you want to find out, does, can I use my iPhone underwater to take pictures? And you find that Apple says, no. Okay. But it looks pretty watertight. What could it hurt? I don't think that's really about me. That was the Apple 5. I got the Apple 6 or 7 or 10 or whatever the newest one is now. And so you try it underwater and you learn that sure enough, Apple's right. We get it with our stuff. 
Ignorance of the Maker's instructions and disobedience to the Maker's instructions land you in the same place. Disasterville. We understand that principle about the stuff we use day to day, yet amazingly when it comes to God's Word, we think differently. Why do I really need to know what God says? I mean, I, can, I know what's right for life. I know what's best for me. It's all good. I don't need to know this stuff. Or we read it and we go, No, not for me. I get it. That applies to the Brant family. Yeah, but my family's different. I'm different, you know. Sorry. It's the same problem that started back in Genesis chapter 3 where Satan comes to Eve he says, God didn't really say, did He? I think God's holding out on you. What do you think? Okay. Now I ask you, how did that work out for her? How did it work out for the rest of us? Because we got in on the tail end of that. And yet, why is it that we think it'll be different for us if we ignore what God says, we don't listen, and we don't do what He says? That's enough for today. <laughs> next week, we're going to pick it up and go to the next section. But this week, what the psalm is celebrating is that God has given you a great treasure that you hold in your hands. God has spoken. We have here the very Word of the Sovereign God and Creator of the universe. Words of authority that command our attention and words of life that we are foolish if we ignore. So I hope that this week we're all going to be a little more motivated to, and a little more faithful in listening to God and obeying His Word. Next week we're going to come back and we're going to see how that thing of listening and digging into God's Word can turn from being a big chore into being a big pleasure. Would you like to hear that next week?